So glad that uh, Daniel shared that with us this morning. We all need a miracle. I think uh, we would readily admit that in this day and age. We'd love to see a miracle these days, wouldn't we? Everyone uh, who has been sick, we'd love to see made completely whole. Wouldn't that be amazing? We'd love to recover what's been lost over these five and a half. Can you believe that? Five and a half months? We're coming up on six months of this. I think I told you we're not calling it the new normal. We're calling it the uh, superbly weird. But five and a half months of this, we'd love to see a miracle that would end all suffering just because we are people and we don't like to see others suffer. It's just how we're wired And I bet if I paused or passed around the mic and said, we'd like to see a miracle here, and you filled in the blank, uh, there'd be some diverse answers there. The Lexham Bible Dictionary defines a miracle as an event that defies common expectations of behavior and subsequently is attributed to a superhuman agent, an occurrence that demonstrates God's involvement in the course of of human affairs. Now we've been talking a lot and taking a closer look at some of the miracles in our Bible study that we've been engaged in all ages across the spectrum here from preschool to adults using the gospel project. We've been looking at the miracles, some of the miracles of Jesus. We've journeyed with Jesus over this summer and we've seen 10 lepers healed in Luke 17. We've seen a hemorrhaging woman and a dead little girl raised We've seen those healings from Jesus in Mark 5. In John 5, we saw a man healed at Bethesda. In John 9, a man born blind was made to see by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Luke 8, demons were cast out. The multitude was fed with two fish and five loaves. In John 6, we saw Jesus last week walk on the water as our friend, new friend to Grace Covenant, Pastor Vincent Riley shared Uh, the miracle on the Sea of Galilee. We've covered this and quite a bit of Jesus' teaching ministry this summer in our Bible study groups. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, how are you doing Bible study groups with the world locked down? Well, kind of like everybody else. I know you're about to be completely zoomed out, but uh, there's some redemptive qualities there, and you can join us tonight as we take a deeper dive in this passage. That's why I've picked this passage this Sunday morning. It finishes up our summer semester in the Gospel Project Bible study. It's a fascinating text. I'm not preaching the lesson, but I am preaching the text this morning. If we're to use an inductive study method when we come to this text, we will uh, find ourselves encouraged, I believe, greatly. We would employ the familiar tools that you know and a lot of Grace Covenant folk and some Bible study fellowship folks and BSF uh, gals and guys can quote it for me. Observation, right? Interpretation and application. Longtime DTS professor and oft-quoted Grace Covenant um, hero of the faith, I believe, Howard Hendricks is noted for reminding many of us, if we'll invest a lot of time in observation, then we'll have less work to do in interpretation and application. There's quite a bit to observe here this morning, and I think there's something that will encourage every single person 
in the house of God today. Who, what's going on here? Who's involved? Where did it happen? Why them? What happened? And uh, boy, just the age-old American question, what's in it for me, right? So what? We'll get there. Look with me as we look at who's involved here as we talk about Jesus being transfigured, this incredible miracle. Verses one through three. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. So if you're making note, there are seven key players here. There's Peter, there's James, there's John, and of course it says Jesus, so that's four. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Now we're at six talking with him. It's interesting that six is there, and for those of you old school Bible study nerds, I feel you. Six is the number of man, right? So we've got six men here that we look at. One of them, of course, is the Son of Man, Son of God, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. But then we see the seventh player in this from verse five, and he was still speaking, talking about Peter. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son. And so we catch a glimpse here of the Father. Seven, got him? Peter, James, John, Jesus, Moses and Elijah, and the Father. So have you ever wondered what's so special about Peter, James, and John? They seem to be singled out quite a bit, or I guess you'd say tripled out (laughs) quite a bit, and follow Jesus to do some things that the other disciples weren't invited to. Well, let me even take a step back from that. Why would Jesus take three with him instead of just one? Why not just take Peter? Peter was going to preach on the day of Pentecost. We saw that later on and establish the church at Jerusalem and thousands come to know the Lord powerfully, personally, intimately and begin a living relationship as disciples of our precious Lord. Why not just bring Peter? Well, you know, Jesus does these things on purpose. We learn from Old Testament law that the report of two or three witnesses actually confirms a claim or an event as irrefutable truth. In fact, three witnesses could seal a murderer's fate. You may recall at the illegitimate, illegal Sanhedrin trial of Jesus, they tried to get witnesses to testify against him, two and three, and the witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. But it didn't stop those from persecuting our Lord. Well, why these three? Even with what appears to be a shortage of information about this inner circle, we do know a couple of things from Scripture about Peter, James, and John. First of all, uh, along with Andrew, they had been in business together, partners in a fishing business, before they met Jesus and were well acquainted with one another. Second, they were among the first whom Jesus called. Now, here's something interesting. I don't know how you feel about this, but Jesus gave them nicknames. Now, we're not going to start doing that necessarily at Grace Covenant, although many of you may already have done that for me. Let's keep that to yourself, please. Uh, Nicknames he gave them, this inner circle. He didn't give it to the others. Finally, they were the only group of disciples the Lord seemed to take with him during special occasions that were learning opportunities that the other nine apostles did not share. Now, I want to step to the side for just a moment. I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want us to take a little insight, not jumping too quickly to application, but I want you to observe a discipleship model here. Now, when I talk about that, what does that mean? At Grace Covenant, we talk about a discipleship pathway Sunday morning worship is a part of that discipleship pathway. These large gatherings, 
large for us, right? These large gatherings where we gather together in a large group are, are important. They're biblical. They happen throughout Scripture. This is the assembling of the church. The word ecclesia doesn't just mean called out body. It means called out and gathered body. The New Testament epistles were written to the church at Galatia, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus. This was a gathered and assembled body. This is a part of it, but this isn't it. If you think, and we've been trying, we've been shooting for about 45 minutes, Pastor D, all in, 45 minutes on Sunday morning, because we all love these masks so much. But uh, we're trying our best. It's you, if, you, if we go over, it's usually the fault lies right here. But do you think for a moment that that's enough to sustain you, even as a church body? No, no. And so we see Jesus actually only doing large gatherings a couple of times in his ministry. In fact, you can count on one hand the amount of large gatherings where Jesus gave public addresses. Most of Jesus' ministry happened in, watch this, a small group or a community group, <laughs> a life group. Insert whatever word you want in front of group, that's where it happened. But this group of 20 to 12, you say there were 12, Pastor. Well, there were more. Some fluctuated in and out. We know there were a lot until John 6 happened. It said, and many chose not to walk with him anymore. But we see him going a little bit deeper in ministry and being able to live out and do ministry together with a smaller group. And then we come to this principle here, an even smaller group, men with men. And we would say in our age too, men with men and women with women. Most of Jesus' ministry took place in this smaller group, but Jesus takes this even smaller group aside for even greater teaching and ministry opportunities here. There is no biblical example with Jesus of consistent one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Did you know that? Now, we tried that for a long time in church ministry. Here's what we found. We found that one-on-one -on -one has a, sorry, high failure rate. Because you know what, if I'm, well, let me say it more correctly. If Brother Phil here is gonna disciple me and I'm gonna spend time with him, if I don't show up, boy, that's a lonely meeting. <laughs> for the two of us are meeting for breakfast every week and I miss half of them, I'm in trouble, right? And he knows that's not gonna go and then he starts over. He's like, well, this guy's not interested. I'll pick somebody else, invest in their lives. But if you're doing it with three to five people, three to five guys, there's a little bit of social pressure, peer pressure, if you will, of the good kind that resonates there. We see Jesus discipling here, these three, pulling them aside and going deeper and doing more with them. We're gonna see that in the coming months and years, Lord willing, at Grace Covenant Church. Men with men, women with men, women, small discipleship groups for the purpose of, watch this, making disciples. It's a beautiful thing. Peter, James, and John were also men of prayer. I want you to remember that. Who's the other folks we see there? We see Jesus. Of course, I, I would say I don't need to tell you who Jesus is, but I'm a preacher. It's my job, so let me. Where does this happen in the timeline? Just before this, just a chapter back in about a week, eight days before, Peter has that incredible confession of faith. You remember? Jesus gets the disciples together in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18, and says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say you're this person. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, full of the Spirit of God, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. It's upon that proclamation of Christ alone being the rock that the church 
the ecclesia was going to be built. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. For by him, Jesus, were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Christ, might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is our God and King, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke and taught with great clarity. In fact, when he spoke, the disciples said, never a man spake such as this. He didn't speak of easy believism, of signing a card and winding up in heaven one day. He didn't speak of works-based salvation, nor did he call people to a mental ascent of ideologies or a worldview. No, just in the chapter before, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever loves his own life or would save his life will lose it, but who loses his life for my sake will find it. And that age-old question, I can hear it in the voice of Dr. Graham when he spoke in Charlotte, North Carolina, saying, and what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. What are you chasing this morning? Are you chasing the American dream? Or are you chasing the Lord Jesus Christ? I find it incredibly compelling that almost a week later, they are headed up to the mountain to pray. That was Jesus' intent here, to pray. The disciples wind up being heavy with sleep and almost miss the moment, but Jesus goes just a little bit further. Aren't you glad he goes just a little bit further? Praise God for that. We see Peter, James, John, Jesus. We also see Moses. Moses. Moses represents the law. In fact, he was the greatest lawgiver of the Old Testament. He's a representation of all those who die in the faith as well. Moses died. Remember, he didn't get to see the promised land. We're going to spend some time as a church working through Exodus in the coming months. But uh, Moses will remember, and it won't be a news shock to anybody, spoiler alert, dies and doesn't get to make it to the promised land, but he's allowed to see it from a distance. God in his mercy would allow him to do that. Moses died a natural death. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, it's appointed to men to die. It's appointed to men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. We may not like to talk about it, but we have been faced with our own mortality in recent days as we watch stats nobody wants to watch. We remember that death is a certainty. Everyone in this room likely will face the grave. We have an appointment to keep. There's only one that gets to waive that appointment, and the next person we see represents that, Elijah. Elijah, of course, represents the prophets. If Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. He was the first of the great prophets, and he represents those, watch this, who won't taste death, but will see the glory of God. 
Now, some of you are much smarter than I. You've studied the Bible for years, probably more than I've been alive. And you've got a more robust and maybe even a differing view than I have on timelines of end-time things. I'm not here to defend any kind of position on that, just to point to this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writing, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he also decries and says the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. You may have a calendar that looks differently than mine, but can we agree that's what the Bible says? There will be some that Jesus cancels that appointment with death and says, no, no, I'm just going to take you with me. Got it? It happened in Scripture. Elijah represents this and the prophets. Moses represents those who go by way of the grave. Every one of these six men are men of prayer. Every single one of them are men of prayer. They had all gone to pray. They prayed. Here's a quote I want you to remember. Just a little life lesson, nothing major, nothing earth-shattering here. God displays himself brilliantly among a praying people. God displays himself brilliantly among a praying people. Can I give you the other side of that, though? God will not be brightly displayed by a prayerless people. We can have all the programs. We can have all the church growth methods. We can have the gathering large that I talked about, the community groups rocking it out, Sunday school happening like a boss, and men with men and women with women, and look like we're reaching the south end. But if the Lord doesn't build the house, we labor in vain. And how do we know he's building? If we're people of prayer recognizing it's not our ingenuity, it's not the strength of our flesh, it's the Lord that does the work. And finally, we see here that last player in this saga unfolding, the father. That voice comes and says, this is my beloved son. The father again ratifies his son as the son of God and son of man, both truly God and truly man with his voice. John the baptizer had an encounter with this. You remember in Matthew 3, the heavens opened up and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There have been some famous councils in the annals of time that have shaped the trajectory of life and civilization as we know it. Nations and news sources have breathlessly waited on leaders to negotiate peace or to declare war. There have been great displays of earth's pomp and circumstance and assemblies of athletics and entertainment and science and industry and government all put trying to put their indelible mark on history. And yet, there has never, ever been, nor was there ever held so important a council as this on the Mount of Transfiguration. There was no glamour and grandeur of earthly councils, but this bare hilltop was lit up with the glory of God. So what actually happened? Let me walk, that's who's playing, here's what actually happened, then we come to the application. The what happened won't take too long, I promise. Let me walk you through what's playing out here in our text. Matthew gives the most complete, detailed account of the transfiguration. 
And that indicates for those of you Bible readers that love reading the Gospels that maybe he was not quite as dependent on Mark's account as we had first thought. Luke mentions that Jesus was praying and the disciples were sleeping when the transfiguration took place and suddenly the face of Christ shone as the sun. His raiment also took on a supernatural light. Mark tells us his raiment was exceeding white as snow. Luke says the fashion of his countenance was altered. So we see that this was a real and supernatural revelation of the glory of God. Here's what happened. Jesus was transfigured before his disciples. You got it? They were asleep at that moment. They'd gone up to pray. Has that ever happened to you? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to outpray the disciples. Or is that just me, right? All right, maybe some more of us. Or you're going to pray, and then you think about all the tasks that you haven't done. It's like a floodgate comes into your mind of all the things that you need to handle. You don't have time to pray. You've got to get these things done. I don't know about all that. You, many of us are afraid to admit we're too busy not to pray, but that's where we should be. They were asleep, but they were wide awake when Jesus was transfigured. They see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. We get insight from Luke's gospel that they were discussing the coming death of Jesus at Jerusalem. Okay? So then Peter has this revelation. You see it on the screen. Peter says, uh, I'm making, I don't think he went, uh, that's me being Peter. I'm trying, working on my acting skills. We saw a Narraway production a couple, uh, just the other weekend, so I've been trying to think about acting, right? So Peter says, uh, Lord, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Here's the thing I love about that. Peter wanted to do something. You ever been in that mode? You're like, "Ah, I've just got to do, this is so awesome, I want to do something. Even though he'd not been asked or addressed for his opinion. Uh, Let's build something here. Both Mark and Luke comment that Peter did not know what he was saying. It wasn't a sensible proposition. Watch this. Os Guinness describes the cycle of organizations this way. It starts with a man, it moves to men, it becomes a movement, and then a monument is made and maintenance is required the cycle of organizations. He says those that last, the ones that stand the test of times, and he's speaking pragmatically, of course, are those that know how to break the monument cycle. Peter jumps right there. (laughs) In fact, it's happened today. All right, for those of you who have been to Israel, how many of you have never been, you've never taken a trip to the Holy Land? Just by show of hands, you've never taken a trip to the Holy Land. We should fix that sometime soon. I don't know, we'll plan. Once the world isn't shut down anymore, we'll see what we can do and see if we can get a trip together to go to the Holy Land, okay? That'd be an amazing trip. Life-changing. I'm not saying life-changing in the same way the gospel was, but when we talk about we live by faith, we we don't live by what we see, we live by the things that are not seen, but there's something special that happens when you see and, uh, and get to handle some of the things over there. It's just, it's just remarkable. But when you go over there, the Mount of Transfiguration identified traditionally is listed as Mount Tabor. And here's why. Because they built some monuments there. <laughs> Folks that identify Mount Tabor as the Mount of Transfiguration rely heavily on tradition, and they don't really get in the way of Scripture, but not so heavily on Scripture. As you would likely gather, in 326, the mother of Constantine, Helena, who gave us some great marks over there uh, for the Christian church, she built a church on the top of Mount Tabor. There's now also a basilica, and there's a Greek Orthodox church there. These three structures commemorate this as the Mount of Transfiguration. The problem is, if you go by the Bible, 
the distance from Mount Tabor where Jesus was, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's also not a high mountain that the Gospels describe it as. Mount Hermon is likely the better site of transfiguration. And you'll never be asked that when you go to the DMV for your next license exam, nor will it be on your qualifications to fill out your taxes or to vote. But I'm a preacher, and we nerd out on these things, and I thought at least one and a half of you would like to know that it's Mount Hermon. There you go. Moving on. What's the point about all that? Don't get so transfixed on making a monument or a memory of what God has done. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't think about all the glory days of the past. They're gone. Don't think about what might have been, could have been. Don't think too much about your accolades or your liabilities. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Peter pragmatically says, I've got an idea. And then, praise God, the Lord's word thunders forth. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and God speaks. What a voice. What a confirmation. Moses would allude to this in Deuteronomy 18, saying, The Lord God will raise up a prophet for you like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and do whatever he tells you. This would so mark Peter that in 2 Peter chapter number 1, he says, We heard the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice their response. Matthew's the only one that records this. Take your Bibles if you're joining us today and you need a Bible to look on with. It's page 977 in that pew Bible if you need one. But in Matthew 17, you'll see their response as you read on. When the disciples heard this, verse 6, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Matthew alone records this. I wonder what our response would have been. Would we have rushed to get our cameras out to record the moment? A few things can happen this day and age. We'd say if it's not Instagrammed, it didn't happen, right? If you didn't capture it, it didn't happen. Well, it did happen and didn't need a monument. Some of us would say, oh, that's nice. It doesn't really do much for me. How does the transfiguration affect my life? I'll get there in a moment. Some of us would say, I'd pay to see that. They should have built a monument and then charged to it, and we could have funded ministry that way, (laughs) right? Or would you fall on your face? and humble adoration, recognizing that God in his kindness had allowed you to catch a glimpse of something supernatural. Boy, I pray pray that's how we'd respond. Jesus commanded them to get up, stop being afraid, and with assurance they lifted up their eyes. Moses and Elijah, as well as the cloud, had disappeared. Verse 8, if you don't have this verse underlined in your Bible, highlighted, circled, boy, I want you to do that. Ma'am, please do that. You ready? And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. See Jesus this morning. Not the trials, not the triumphs, not the past, not the future, not Rona. (laughs) See Jesus. See Jesus this morning. Not your accolades, not your liabilities, not your deficits. See Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You find him revealed beautifully in God's word and as they were coming down the mountain jesus says don't tell anybody don't you love that in the bible when he tells a lot of them don't tell anybody they go tell everybody he tells us to go tell everybody and some of us don't tell anybody but then they want to ask him like he's just had this incredible moment of timing with them are you catching the irony of this Like he took them up to the mountain to pray. There's this incredible moment of glory and they come down and they start, I would imagine, 
they were a little pretentious and probably if they had glasses would have stuck them in. Now Jesus, <laughs> there's some prophecy about eschatology we need to discuss. In Malachi, it says that Elijah, most eschatology conversations sound like that, by the way. That's big word for end time stuff when people want to find out, where do you land on this? You know what? I've not found it profitable to defend any of those positions. I'm just going to help try to help you see Jesus and be ready for his return. All right, and be ready for that appointment one way or the other. Can I tell you something, though? Jesus dealing with timing then schools them just a little bit. You see, he says, I'm pretty good at timing. God knows exactly what's going on and he knows what time it is. He is sovereign and his reign is over and above and outside of all time and space. Haven't you found that to be the case in your life? If you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, can you look in the rearview mirror and say, you know what? I, I wasn't sure in the moment because I was drowning in my circumstances. But you know what? He's an on-time God. This gospel writer said, yes, he is. Ask Israel at the Red Sea. He's on time, they would tell you. They wouldn't have seen it in the moment, but on the other side, walking on dry land, they would have said he's on time. Ask Joshua when he comes to the well-fortified city of Jericho. Watch him march around the sixth time and the seventh time. And Joshua and the people with him would say, he's on time. Ask Jonah on the shores of Nineveh, having been spit out by the mouth of the great fish, and he would say, he's on time. Daniel in the den of the lions would say hello to the king who threw him in, and the king would look at Daniel and then turn to the nation and say, he's on on time, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego will testify from and outside of the furnace without the smell of smoke on them. He's an on-time God. And Paul, writing to the church at Galatia, disappointed because they're already chasing other things. They're like the dog on the movie Up. They see a squirrel and they're like, squirrel, right? Anything that's shiny, they're chasing after. And Paul would say, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God. Family, church family, hear me. He is an on-time God. He's not forgotten you. He knows exactly where you are. In fact, you may not like this. He may have planned it for his glory but he's on time. These men experienced God's glory, God's grace, and they got a glimpse of God's plan when he said, look, about that prophecy, here's what's happening. The spirit of Elijah has already come. You've just seen, it's funny, they were asking about Elijah and they just seen it. Anyway, that's how I get sometimes. I get so focused on one detail of something, I'm missing the forest for the trees. And Jesus is saying, I just want you to see me. Stop looking for Elijah. I'm here. Let's do this thing. The kingdom of God is here, finally. The last thing I would give you this morning, just as encouragement, application, it's really short. focus on Jesus. I told you to kind of hone in on that verse eight, but that's really the message this morning. This miracle that took place, why in the world would Jesus let this miracle take place? Well, smarter men and women that I have chronicled for years and said, you know what? It could be that these, even the inner circle of disciples needed to be encouraged on their journey in a way that just the spoken word wouldn't do. The disciples probably needed far more, this far more than Jesus' spoken assurances because he had been talking about his death and his resurrection. Remember, every time he talked about his death, they would go sideways. What? What are you talking about, Lord? What? what? 
Peter, James, and John were encouraged greatly because of this counter. What's so spectacular about this for us, though? Nobody was healed. No demons were cast out. No one was rescued. No blinded eyes were opened. No lame made to walk. No mute made to talk. No money raining out of a fish's mouth. It loses its appeal rather quickly to the consumer-minded churchgoer of 2020. But the Christian, longing to see Jesus, longing to know Christ more fully, to love him more deeply, to serve him more joyfully, sees, here's what we see. We see the law, the prophets, the heavens, and the church on the mountaintop focused on the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel proclaimed from the highest mountaintops to the lowest valleys. We have been transformed by this transfigured king who chose to show his glory so that we could transmit the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Have you experienced God's grace, his glory? Are you a part of the plan of God? If you haven't, you can. The relationship that you were made to have that you don't currently have, you can have. This morning, I'm gonna let the text call you to action. Lift up your eyes and see Jesus only. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We think about this incredible miracle on the mountaintop. We talked about the miracle on the sea last week, and now we have the miracle on the mountaintop, Lord. We marvel that this is a moment in history. It happened. It's corroborated by the account of the witnesses, Lord, but we also marvel that there's so much application here for us, even though we're likely not taking a trip anytime soon to Mount Hebron or Mount Tabor. Lord, we want to see you glorified, and you are most glorified when we are most satisfied with you. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to let the things of earth grow strangely dim, as it says, in the light of your glory and grace. We ask these things in the precious name that is above every name, and the church said, amen.